Your Family, Your Money is brought to you by Westpac Bump Savings Account. Welcome to a Kindling podcast, Your Family, Your Money. I'm Georgina Dent. And I'm Caitlin Fitzsimmons. We're two mums with young families and we want to help all families understand money better. It is so closely linked with with all of the things that we do, whether that is, you know, where we live, how we live, how we look after our children, where they go to school, how we spend our holidays. It's, It's so closely linked with all of those decisions. And I think that empowering people to to be comfortable talking about money is so important. It's true. It's one of those big taboos. People hate talking about it, but especially for couples, it's like you you really have to get on the same page about it. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And I think that the way families manage their money is incredibly important to their to their security and to their their happiness. In this episode, we're talking about schooling and children's development including the merits of public versus private school, paying for extras, whether it's music lessons or speech therapy, saving for private school or university education, why you should never voluntarily pay your hex bill, and housing affordability for the next generation. That is a comprehensive list of topics for us to discuss today. It sure is. So let's start with the old debate of public versus private school. Where do you stand on this? Look, I am only very slightly conflicted because I did go to a private school. Um, I grew up in regional Australia. Both of my parents grew up on in, in rural Australia and both went to boarding school in Sydney. And so for us, it was sort of just the done thing. And I'm aware when I say that it sounds incredibly elitist. Um, it wasn't. Um, it was definitely something that I was aware that mum and dad both worked hard to sacrifice for. Um, and I was very grateful for that. I don't think, and I don't think my parents think, that the outcome of my education was vastly different because of that. Um, and I think also when I went to school, which was 15 years ago, and when I finished high school, it also was considerably cheaper than it is now. So I look at it and I, I find it difficult to justify on the sums why private school fees would be worth paying when when it's fairly clear that there's no huge difference in outcomes. I went to public school until year nine and then I went to a private school for the last four years of school. But it actually wasn't because it was a private school. It was uh, a Steiner school. So it was alternative education, happens to be outside the government system. Uh, But, you know, it was also a very good school. And, you know, I I did feel that I noticed a a, a difference in uh, resources. And we had some really, I've had some really excellent, passionate teachers in the public system, but there seemed to be kind of more of that at at the school I went to in my later high school. But, you know, for my own children, I'm pretty much committed to sending them to public school. And the reason being that we have a very large mortgage and that's not something my own parents had to contend with. And we also have excellent public schools in our area. I couldn't be happier with the primary school they're at and there's a very good high school that they can attend later on as well. So I think for us it would be wasted money uh, unless there's a very good reason for that individual child. 
Yes, our eldest daughter is at primary school and our middle daughter will start next year and they will both be at the local primary school. And we have been blown away, frankly, by that school community and the level of commitment from the teachers. I think that the tricky thing is that there is a huge disparity around Australia with the the different situations schools are in. And I think that being in an inner city area, the public schools are better resourced than in other areas. And I think that is, you know, that's a different conversation than what we're having today. But I think that is something that is relevant. So most kids go to public school. Uh, According to the Bureau of Statistics, almost two out of three kids are going to a government school. And that proportion's actually been slightly rising since 2014, which is something that surprised me. I think, though, if you look at the, the cost of private school fees, they have gone up fairly significantly in recent times. And I think when you consider the fact that wage growth around Australia has been fairly flat for the last couple of years, I think both of those um, factors would contribute to the fact that more kids are going to public schools. And also housing costs are going up as well. But that is uh, across both primary and uh, high school. And the number of children going to public high school is still falling. It's less than three out of five kids, so just under 60%. So is it worth it? It's a deeply personal choice. But the research actually shows that private schools don't deliver substantially better outcomes when you control for the family's socioeconomic status and levels of education. It's the family background that makes the biggest difference rather than the school. And with that in mind, I suppose if you are looking at the kind of money that you would be spending on private school if you went down that path, it is interesting to think about how that investment could be placed elsewhere. Well, I mean, definitely. And it's not to say that spending on education is a a bad thing, but imagine if you took that money, you could pay off the house, you could pay for a whole lot of other things that are educational, such as uh, tutoring if that's needed, extracurricular activities, family holidays that can be educational, depending what you do. And then you still had some money left over to help them through university and uh, and get them started in their adult life. I think that is worth considering as well. Look, I agree. And I think that you know, we have talked a lot in this in, in previous episodes of this podcast about the fact that finance is a major source of stress in a lot of households. And I suppose that would be the point that I would return to with private school. But if paying those fees is going to put the whole family under incredible financial stress, then I think it probably is worth looking at and and, and considering your options. If it's something where paying those fees doesn't affect your sort of financial position and you are able to do that easily, then I think that's a different point. But I, I would be encouraging families to be realistic about their own position and the cost and think about how they are best off spending that money. And remember that their own retirement is actually important as well. But I think there's a lot of guilt and conformism tied up in this. I mean, you mentioned you felt somewhat conflicted. I met a lady who uh, lived in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and she had moved into an area, especially because the local primary school was excellent. And she'd, she'd bought a house, particularly so her kids were in the zone, to go to that school. But when the time came, 
she felt too guilty about it because she herself had gone to a private school that she sent her son off to a local boys' private school. And then the daughter turned five and she sent her off to a local girls' private school. And then suddenly she had three children in three different places, two kids at boys' and girls' schools and one kid at the at a local preschool. And it was a complete nightmare for the family to, to manage this triple drop-off. Well, I think the household logistics are complicated enough for most families getting out the door that I can, I can definitely, I can't imagine how difficult it would be managing three different locations. I think the other thing that's worth talking about is, as, as you and I have both said, we've got children in local primary schools, which are public. But even those, it's not entirely free. There are definitely payments that you have to make. Yeah, there's voluntary contributions that are in reality not so voluntary. There are costs for excursions um, and extracurricular activities such as music ensembles or chess club. There's fundraising that the parent body does that, you know, if your child is going to win a pizza party for their class, you know, they're really going to want to spot you to sponsor them in the fun run. Uh, so, you know, there there are costs and there's also, you know, you might need after school care and you might need vacation care. But the thing is, if you've been paying childcare fees for all those years, it's nothing like that. No. There are it's... still <laughs> There are still costs, but it's it's a huge relief once they get to school. Those costs drop exponentially. Absolutely, which is very welcome, I would say, for a lot of families. And you can also get a childcare subsidy for that after-school care and vacation care. We talked about how the system was changing in an earlier episode, um, but you can take a look by searching on Google for the child care subsidy estimator. And as we have said before, the the cost for after-school care compared to long-day care is, you know, it's inconsequential. So it would be very rare for a family to be reaching the cap in that sort of um, realm, but it is definitely worth looking into that calculator. Of course, outside of childcare and school, there are certainly costs with children. I, when you stop and think about things like, you know, I've got friends that have, they're, they're um, kids might have eczema or asthma, and that means that trips to the dermatologist, which aren't covered by health insurance, um, are, are unavoidable costs. And there are a lot of costs that can fall into that category. Well, that's right. You know, I, I've um, known families whose kids need speech therapy, occupational therapy, psychology even. Um, and some of these services are available free through family health clinics, especially when they're younger. But the older they get, the the less access they have to that. Uh, so then you start having to go private and the, the costs are substantial. Uh, you can often get a care plan from your GP. Uh, you'll you'll need to ask the the GP for that usually, and um, they'll explain what the eligibility is, and you can discuss whether you you meet that. It can also be a case where maybe for that family, the extra coverage in private health insurance does add up, as long as you bear in mind that it's not unlimited. It, it will just be kind of a certain amount per year. So, okay, so you might get a care plan uh, that covers, uh, say, 
five sessions of occupational therapy and then you'll get a rebate from Medicare for those um, sessions. Or it might be split. So it's three sessions with the OT and then two sessions of speech therapy. And it doesn't cover 100% of the cost, but it, it definitely helps. And it is worth saying that without a care plan, those sort of expenses are usually 100% out of pocket. Exactly. So if you went to the speech therapist without a care plan, you would be paying up front the full fees. That's right. Uh, and then there's also the mental health care plan, which for uh, adults or, or for children, and that's 10 sessions uh, a calendar year. So if they need to see a psychologist um, for, you know, perhaps if they're experiencing severe anxiety or depression or, uh, you know, dealing with an eating disorder or, you know, there can be, or uh, if they're on the autism spectrum, there can be lots of reasons why you might want that sort of allied health service. Look, we've had experience in my family, one of um, our daughters needed speech therapy. And it is the sort of thing that when it's necessary, you don't want to skimp on it. I mean, you want to get the best support that you can in the best manner possible. And that that does sometimes mean spending more money. For us, there were a couple of reasons why it wasn't, we weren't able to get a care plan, but we determined that it was so important that we would just persevere anyway. And yes, the out-of-pocket expense wasn't minimal, but the upside is invaluable, I would say. And I think it is worth, you know, and I've had a number of friends who have also needed speech therapy um, or occupational therapy for their kids. And almost universally, the benefit in seeking that help is so substantial because it really is, it's fundamental to your children's sort of well-being and ability to participate in, in preschool or in school and the occupational therapy, I should explain, might be for handwriting, for kind of pencil grip and those kind of fine motor skills is a very common reason why 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 children would need that. So it might be that you get your, your five sessions uh, through the GP care plan. It's 10 for mental health, but five for other things. Um, and then you claim up to the maximum that you can on private health insurance if you have that, then you're still going to be probably out of pocket after that, but you can at least offset some of the costs. If the problem is severe, uh, then you might also be eligible for funding under the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. I don't know a lot about how you uh, apply for that, but I think talking to your GP would be the first port of call. You're listening to the podcast, Your Family, Your Money. In this episode, we're talking about schooling and children's development. Still to come are paying for extra support, how to help with university fees, and why you should never voluntarily pay your HEX bill. If you have any topics or questions, feel free to drop us an email, podcast at kindling.com.au. And we do have a question from Joe from Carlton in Sydney. I only realised recently that if you call your bank every three months, you can potentially lower your mortgage interest rate on variable loans. A lot of people probably don't realise this. So any advice on what to do and what to say would be good. That is, if you are lucky enough to have bought a property. (laughs) Well, I think it's a great question. And look, I recently actually was reading a section of the book, The Barefoot Investor, which has been a bit of a breakout hit in Australia recently. 
And in it, he he makes the case for calling a number of your providers, so whether it is your bank for your mortgage or whether it is your insurance providers. Um, because the thing is, there's often a lot of special discounts going on for new customers signing up. And by simply saying that you're thinking about moving your business elsewhere, it is surprising what you can actually get back. So I think that that theory of actually calling your bank and and saying, I'm think about, thinking about moving my product, they're conversations worth having because you might be able to knock interest rates off. You might be able to get a better rate, get a discount, and those things add up. What I would do to prepare for the call is to shop around and see what other banks are offering. We don't have a government provider for comparison site for mortgages. I would suggest uh, CanStar as a site to go to. That's C-A-N-S-T-A-R. It has does have the whole market represented. You just have to untick boxes that say things like, only show me results with links. And then you can kind of search around for mortgages with the amount that you're owing and, and so on and find out what rates are available, particularly from some of the smaller banks. And then you can use that as leverage when you're talking to your own bank. And if you, I think, you know, you should be prepared to walk as well, but definitely try getting the discount from your own provider first because it is much less hassle. Yes. It goes back to that point though, that information is power and that by doing a little bit of research before you ring, you know, you you may well be in a position where you can negotiate a better deal. And we've got another question here, which is actually really relevant to today's podcast. It's from Jason from Meadow Heights in Melbourne. He says, schooling and university fees. What are the best ways to save a little each week now to help cover the costs when they arise later, but avoid fees and taxes where possible? Great question, Jason. That's what we're going to talk about now. So if you if you are planning to send your kids to private school or to help them with university or with you know other aspects of getting started in life then there are good ways that you can do that. And if you're a homeowner, um, then I would say you should save by building up the funds in your offset account and then withdrawing them when the time is right. And the reason for that is that it's tax-free, it's very simple, it's completely risk-free, and you can get to the money at any time. But of course, not everyone owns a home yet, so we need to think about some other options as well. Would you suggest investing in the share market or in a managed fund or what would what do you think are the best vehicles to save you know those sorts of figures over a long period of time? Yeah, I would say that I mean if you if you want money in the short term then you should keep it in cash and have it in the bank where you can draw on it. But if you've got a longer term horizon, you know, you're saving for your kids to go to high school in 10 years time for example, then I think you're not going to get enough growth just from having it in the bank. You really want to be investing in the market. One of the simplest ways to do that for people who are new to investing is through an index fund. They can be a managed fund or they can be what's called an exchange traded fund or an ETF. And what an ETF is, is it's a fund that tracks the market. So if the market goes up or it goes down, the the fund kind of rises and falls with it. Or it can track a particular part of the market. There are lots of different flavors of ETF. But the benefit is that you've got inbuilt diversification. 
You don't have to know uh, a lot about the different companies within it. It generally rises over time as the market does. And they're very cheap, whereas with a managed fund, you're going to be paying fees to the investment managers, whereas an ETF, you kind of avoid that because it's a little bit more automated and and driven by technology. When we talk about things like saving for university, for example, and we've got young kids at this point, I also think that it's relevant to be thinking about compound interest and and how you can expose yourself to as much of that as possible if you've got a longer term horizon. And that's why I think something like um, an index fund or uh, an insurance bond where there is that potential for growth is worth considering. Well, I think also if it is for your kids, then don't just invest for them, invest with them, like show them what you're doing and explain the benefits of compound interest. And the basic principle with compounding is that uh, so your investment either earns interest in the bank or it grows if it's an investment. And then that growth gets reinvested. And so it snowballs over time. I think Albert Einstein described it as the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> and, you know, he's not far wrong. It's it's pretty phenomenal, especially when you've got time on your side. Uh, you mentioned insurance bonds. Uh, they can be, they're really popular with grandparents who want to invest for their grandchildren, which, um, you know, it's certainly something we get asked a lot at Fairfax. The good thing about insurance bonds is that it's very tax effective um, because if you have investments in kids' names, they pay a really high rate of tax. And if you have investment in your name, then you're paying the tax. And with insurance bonds, it kind of defers all of that until the bond actually becomes mature and gets paid out. So that can be a a really great way for people to, to save on behalf of children. Why don't we talk about university next? We both went to university, right? We did. And, I mean, it is expensive, but it is probably worthwhile. I mean, that would be my experience. What do you think, Caitlin? Yeah, I I was lucky enough that it was not quite as expensive when I went through. Uh, But, you know, I read some interesting research the other day on the value of a degree. And even these days when you've got a degree costing tens of thousands of dollars or even kind of up towards $100,000 in some cases, it's still worth it if, uh, I mean, it's not for everyone. There There are some people who it's, you know, it's probably not going to be suitable for. But for those people who have the aptitude and the desire It's actually financially worth it because apparently, how much do you think it's worth over a lifetime, if you had to guess? I I think it would be somewhere in the maybe half a million dollars. Well, apparently, if you have the average wage for a non-graduate and the average wage for a graduate, then it's worth nearly $1.2 million over a lifetime. Wow. I thought I was being generous saying half a million dollars. In fact, it it would be more because obviously, you know, that's in today's dollars. Yeah. Okay. So I think university is, is, is well worth it. But, you know, when it comes to that hex debt, it, it can be kind of overwhelming for a lot of people. The one thing I would say is that you shouldn't ever voluntarily pay your hex bill. You will have to pay it in time through the tax system. But 
you don't need to rush to think you need to pay it off extra and you don't need to worry about that debt. It's not going to kind of compound out of control like a credit card debt or even a mortgage. It's just going to rise very slightly with the cost of living. It's the best debt that you'll ever have. I mean, I think the HEX scheme does have to be celebrated for being a pretty fabulous way of of funding university education in a way that is not upfront. But I also think that the issue that is facing, you know, current university students, and certainly if we're talking about our children attending university in the future, it's the cost of living around that time um, that is something that I think can be potentially prohibitively expensive. Because, I mean, as we all know, I mean, I'm sure this was your experience, Caitlin, when you are a university student, you are living off very little money because it's, it is difficult to combine paid work with study. I mean, everyone does it, but it's not, you're certainly not earning a high income. And I think the cost of living in capital cities, and, you know, there are a lot of universities in capital cities, that is hugely expensive. And so it is something that I think parents like Jason are thinking about in the future of how they can help their own children manage financially through that period of time. There are a lot of great universities outside the capital cities as well. I went to university in uh, a country town and I did that for two reasons. And one is because it had a great degree that I was interested in studying. And the second reason was that it was the only way that I could see that I was going to be able to afford to leave home and be independent. And I was really keen to get started on that journey. You know, and I had a great time. It was three years away. I'd grown up in the city and I've moved back to the city, but I had a good time going away for university. So the the other value of HEX versus a parent paying for the fees is that the child uh, or the young adult, actually, uh, is going to feel more ownership over their degree. They, they're going to feel that they're paying for it themselves, so therefore they might value it more and, and put more effort in. You can always save the money and give it to them as a gift at the end if you if you want to. I would be saying that they shouldn't put that into the hex. They should invest it. But, you know, as long as it doesn't get wasted, that's the main thing. Well, and I suppose because of the cost of living for the next generation, those sorts of considerations are pretty important, I would say. Well, I agree. We have a housing affordability crisis in Australia. And sure, the, the property market is you know, settling down. You know, I think it's going to be a little bit slower going from here, but it is still an extraordinary amount of money that our children will need when it comes time for them to to buy a home. So, you know, I think a lot of people do do worry about that. Um, you know, there are also it's probably a luxury because there are a lot of families who are worried about themselves being able to afford a home right now. But you know, if you're lucky enough that you've already got a home. You know, there might be kind of uh, ways that you can think about ensuring that your children will be able to have that as well. And it's probably worth thinking about because the alternative is that our children will just never leave home, <laughs> which which is probably likely for a lot of, you know, for our kids. But anyway, that's a scary thought. Well, you know, I think encouraging financial independence and, you know, just learning the the life skills, not just the money skills around uh, that are required to be an adult is one of the most important jobs as a parent. Look, I said earlier that I went to a private school and that was a boarding school. So I had the experience of becoming independent 
very early on. And, you know, I haven't lived with my parents since I was 12. And I can't fathom sort of being, you know, getting to the age of 30 and having never lived independently. Um, I can see financially why that happens. And I mean, I think all the figures show that that is increasingly uh, happening in capital cities. But I can't fathom that lifestyle. And not because I don't love my parents, I adore them. But I also, I think being independent and living independently is critical for your for your personal development. So I think it's worth thinking about if you've got kind of money to put aside that you don't need for, you know, putting the roof over your head and putting food on the table and saving for your own retirement and, you know, the kids' education right now and so on. There's maybe not a left o- lot left <laughs> over for many people. But if you do have money left over, I, I would be trying to save it with the intention of maybe one day helping my children get into the the property market if that's what they want to do. And if they're also kind of saving and, you know, I I would potentially want to provide reciprocal funds if I could. And sometimes there are generous grandparents who prefer to help the grandchildren than their own children for whatever reason. Well, that would be welcome as well, wouldn't it? If you have any topics or questions, feel free to drop us an email podcast at kindling.com.au. We have a question here and from Bendigo in Victoria has written. She says, childcare costs versus going back to work cost. Is there a way to calculate what is the best way to go? Look, this is a subject that we have considered in a few previous episodes, but I think it's worth reiterating because I think it is a very real concern that a lot of families have when it comes to that point of figuring out going back to work versus staying at home. And the point that I would reiterate is that you have to look at the short term versus the long term. So in the short term, paying childcare fees is expensive. There's just no way around it. There is absolutely government support to help subsidise the cost of childcare. Currently, that is in the form of the childcare rebate and then the childcare tax benefits. Uh, From 1st of July 2018, that support is being rolled into one figure. And that certainly helps with the cost of childcare. But for most families, there is still going to be some shortfall and you will be out of pocket. And in the short term, that can seem extremely expensive. But the reality is not going back to work will cost a lot more over time. And so if it's possible for your family to think of a way that you can maintain some connection with the workforce, even if it is for three days a week or four days a week or even just two days a week, longer term you will be better off. If you are fortunate enough to have grandparents who are able to help with childcare, which and there are a lot of fantastic grandparents out there who do that, that's one way of looking at cutting that cost. Also, if you and your husband can consider going to reduced hours and working flexibly, that is another way that you can reduce the cost of going back to work. But you will be better off in the long term for doing it. Join us next time for more of Your Family, Your Money, where we'll look into how to teach kids about money. And I'm excited because we're actually going to have a special guest for that one. Do you know who it is? I do. It's Nicole O'Neill. She's an entrepreneur and probably best known to most listeners from the TV show Real Housewives of Sydney. Your Family, Your Money is brought to you by Westpac Bump Savings Account, 
as part of Westpac's 200th year celebration. If your baby was born in 2017, Westpac will deposit $200 into a Westpac Bump savings account, which they can withdraw when they turn 16. You can open the account online today. Visit westpac.com.au forward slash dearbump. Account must be opened and your ID verified by 31 May 2018. The $200 is limited to one per child and will be forfeited if the account is closed before their 16th birthday. Other T's and C's and eligibility criteria apply. Read the T's and C's available at the Westpac website before deciding if the product is right for you.